Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every basket, every game, every point, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a three-pointer at the buzzer to tie the game or a player that goes two for two at the foul line. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only. Must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. It's been far too long since we had the, this man on. The headmaster, the cap father. What are you going by these days, Larry? Usually just Larry. Hey, you. <laughs> <laughs> some pronoun uh yeah i always feel weird when people actually like call me by my name it usually means like i'm about to get bad news that like goes back to your parents actually like they would only call me by my name when i like had gotten in trouble yeah i hear you i mean i i think i barely remember what my wife's name is because it's always just hey honey it it seems weird to say it uh, you haven't been married that long has it gotten that way for you i did resolve that I would never use a uh, honey as like an affectionate. That was like j- too much of like what my mom and like stepfather did. So like when I was like a 10 year old, I was like, all right, I'm not going to call my wife honey when it, uh, when it comes down to it. So, um, we're going to have you on obviously to talk about sports business classroom. This is now going to be our fourth year doing it together. Very excited to talk about that. A lot of great alumni listen to this show. Uh, We'll probably have Dave Dufour on during the playoffs to do a gamer and talk about what SBC has done for him. He's uh, intimately involved this year again as well. Uh, but I figured yeah, he now, owes us. Yeah, he owes say? us. <laughs> Does he? I mean, he paid. He paid his. Uh, he paid his entrance fee, right? Yeah, I, but I the same entrance fee got some people nowhere. <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're not supposed to. Say that. Although, I mean, it is kind of true, right? I mean, I think it's. SBC is kind of it's a chance to get your foot in the door if you're really dynamic in a way that maybe you wouldn't otherwise and for other people you know maybe that's not the case but you just have an awesome time and make some lifelong friends and have uh, a chance to talk more basketball than you ever thought you would over uh, a week-long period um but the big reason I wanted to have you on here is to talk about this 2017 CBA will be coming up now on our third off season, this 2019 off season under the auspices of this CBA. And so there are a number of changes that were made. So what I want to go through and talk about is some of the major changes and how they're doing so far, whether these have turned out to be team friendly or player friendly, because in theory, when these things are agreed to, they're supposed to help both sides, or maybe there's a give and take where one side gets one thing in exchange. Uh, and then also just in general for us as sort of objective capologists, whether these things, these changes have been good for the league. So why don't we start with probably, uh, I don't know if it's the biggest change, but got the most press yes yeah the one that's gotten the most press and also the one that was probably the biggest reaction to something that had just happened and that was a designated veteran extension so real quickly just for those who don't have it fresh in their minds can you just explain what that is before we talk about it sure so they fixed the problem a long time ago where rookies coming off of that first contract that rookie scale contract 
could get extensions and bigger extensions than they could have gotten had they applied their trade as a free agent. So the league wants to encourage retention and they want to do it by incentivizing retention rather than penalizing um, movement. So they always want to dangle a carrot. And the rookie extensions were the first part of that, where the player now has a contract for his fifth year till his, you know, through his eighth or ninth season in the league. But then what happens after that? Because the player is in his prime at that point. And if he's incentivized to leave, he could leave. It's kind of the Kevin Durant situation, the player you were alluding to. And the the league wants would like to provide teams with the opportunity to hang on to those players a little bit longer. Hence, another extension on top of that rookie extension, which is the designated player extension. Now, they incentivize the rookies by giving them a bigger max than they would have been qualified for. Uh, players zero to six years in the league qualify for 25% of the cap, while the rookie extensions, they let them bump up to that seven to nine year slot and get a 30% max. And it's the same idea here. The designated veterans would be eligible for the seven to nine slot, the 30% max. And this gives them the full 35% max, the ones that only 10-year veterans would normally be eligible for. So it gives them a bigger opportunity to through staying than they otherwise could have been eligible to get had they left as a free agent. Again, intended to incentivize players to stay around. Whether that worked in practice or not, I think is debatable because really the only players who have gotten it so far have been Curry, um, Harden, uh, Westbrook at OKC, and then John Wall. And Harden and Westbrook were, were really grandfathered into the rule. They had already signed long-term extensions the previous summer, but they grandfathered them into this more favorable rule in the 2017 CBA. So it's not like they would have left for greener pastures had this rule not, not been there. And the same thing with Steph Curry, right? Do you see him leaving Golden State? Yeah, after the right after they won the championship. No, I mean, and Curry was a, a free agent, but you can still, of course, be eligible for this if you meet the criteria when you're about to be a free agent. So, and John Wall, I mean, you know, he probably he would have been a free agent this off season. Maybe he would have gone elsewhere, but you know, I mean, the Wizards surely would love to have that contract back, which they signed two years before he even could have become a free agent. So, yeah, I mean, I think it's difficult to say that anyone who and anthony davis is going to be another one right now i mean we know for sure just about that davis is not going to stay even though he's already eligible he's informed the pelicans that he's not going to sign that extension he seems like he might kind of be going on the kevin durant one plus one type of path going forward so yeah you'd be hard pressed to find anyone who would have left and now they're going to stay instead and i mean and that makes a lot of sense i mean generally these sorts of players will have already made over a hundred million dollars in their careers coming up to this inflection point so the money is so big in the league now is really you know another 30 40 million dollars when we're talking about you know 180 versus 230 million dollars you know is that really enough to get a guy to stay in a situation he wouldn't have otherwise stayed it seems kind of unlikely there um so that's uh now one thing the league would say though i want to see what your comment is on this is that the ability to offer the designated veteran extension 
has caused inflection points with certain players and teams when players weren't going to stay anyway. Right. And so at least like teams aren't getting left totally high and dry the way OKC was, where now at least New Orleans could be able to get something for Anthony Davis. And Sacramento didn't want to pay DeMarcus Cousins. Do you buy that line of reasoning? Sure. And you can apply the same thing to Kawhi Leonard, to Paul sure. George. I mean, those players definitely got traded. Paul George certainly because this thing was coming up. So yeah, it's, but it's kind of a mixed bag, right? Yeah. It does. Jimmy Butler, another one too there. Yeah. 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 So it incentivizes retention. But the other thing is that it's hard to afford to put a team around that kind of a player if you're not really in a big market, if you're not a team with a lot of revenue coming in. So. When the 2017 CBA, the term sheet was signed, the very first call I got was from a, a Midwest team in a smaller market saying, this screws us because there was no way they were going to be able to use it because it just would have cost them too much. You you don't sign a player like that and then say, okay, we're going to be competing to be a, a lower tier seed and and get out of the first round. Well, if well you- hold on a second. I mean, I mean, there's still the salary cap. There's the tax. I mean, are you're assuming they're not going to pay the tax regardless. I mean, isn't it just going to make the rest of your team worse? I mean, the idea that we can't afford this seems a little nebulous to me. Well, let's, let's, let me rephrase that. You can't afford to pay the player that much money and afford to put that kind of player on a team that's going to compete for a title. It just becomes that much more expensive and beyond the means of several teams. That makes sense. If you're talking about some teams are never going to pay the tax and they're not going to be able to put a team around it, maybe that's a concern. I, I'm, uh, I mean, they, they may well have felt that way. I, I'm a little bit skeptical about whether, in fact, that's not great because the point of the thing, in theory, was to help quote unquote small markets retain these players. So, all right, in terms, so let, let's give it a, a, do you see that as being team friendly or player friendly ultimately? It's something that's intended to be team friendly to to promote that kind of retention but it didn't result in that it did give some players more money so i would call this player friendly yeah i mean i think really the only player who got paid a lot more than he would have i mean steph curry got paid more but he was going to stay there anyway so i don't think you know golden state just has to pay him more and then john wall certainly uh, (laughs) made out like a bandit here you know if he'd stayed healthy maybe we'd feel a little differently about it but um and just overall for the league, if one is bad, a 10 is great, what rating would you give the uh, the designated player uh, veteran extension or exception? Because it was intended to promote retention and it ended up the opposite. Nobody ended up staying because of this rule and a few players ended up moving because of this rule because, you know, again, when you look at the equal protection, it didn't quite provide that because a, a big market team could afford to use this rule more than a small market team can. I would say it's a net negative. So three or four on a one to 10 scale. Yeah, I'd probably put it there too. I mean, I think it's going to lead to some bad contracts being given out. I mean, this is something that we've talked about before where a player who's in his eighth or ninth year at a given time in the NBA, you know, you might have three, four, maybe five players who are worth $40 million a year. And a lot of those guys aren't on 
that third contract already so you're going to lead to a lot of guys really getting overpaid i think uh, potentially as a result of this rule especially guys who are kind of you know if brad beal is another one he makes it this year he's not going to be a, a 45 million dollar a year player very likely um you know john wall being another of these guys who are just you know happen are a coin flip to make third team all nba some years getting these contracts i think that's bad for the league i do think it's good for the league that players who are not going to re-sign with teams that those teams are able to get something for them and also that those players are able to get to be more relevant to the championship chase by getting out of places earlier you know that that there really is a chance now uh a year or, or even a couple of years ahead of time maybe for some of these guys like Kawhi and ad you know instead of ad just playing out the string in new orleans on a team that wasn't going to compete next year he'll be probably on a team that's pretty good so kind of like that i would say a four ultimately though i mean i think rules that are designed to prevent player movement i generally don't care for personally right and one the other thing you brought up is that it allows the team the opportunity to get something for their player but ironically they took the teeth out of the sign-in trade which was intended to do exactly that yeah that was back in the 2011 cba all right so the regular veteran extension rules what were the changes there uh, where you know it seemed like it was a real problem that for a lot of guys they really it didn't make any sense to extend so this is not the designated players just normal veterans uh, extending now uh, under the 2017 cba a, a new change here yeah and this kind of goes hand in hand with the fact that contracts overall are shorter right it used to be that a player would have to wait and a team would have to wait three years before they were eligible to sign an extension and a contract had to be for at least four seasons before it was even eligible to be extended at all now it allows a contract that is a three-year contract to be extended and three and four-year contracts can be extended after the second anniversary. So it, it promotes the ability for teams to keep players. Again, if you're trying to increase retention, the idea is you want him to be locked up before he can become a free agent and therefore become a flight risk. If this helps. This absolutely helps because some contracts that couldn't be extended can now be extended. Some contracts can now be extended sooner. But I, I this is a rule that I always complained about because I just didn't think it went far enough. The whole idea is that you want to be able to offer the guy market value if you want to be able to keep him. And these extension rules, and yeah, they relaxed it to a 20% raise where it used to be a 12.5% raise. But even a 20% raise doesn't necessarily pay market value to a player who's coming off of a good season. And I always say that if you, if a player wants to stay and the team wants to keep the player, I want them to be able to sign the same deal on June 30th as they could sign in July after the moratorium ends. That week's difference shouldn't make that much of a difference. I think that if if they want to make this a better rule, then maybe, you know, their their point of the the every everything changes is typically after the team's season ends. Well make it so that after the team's season ends, they can sign whatever deal they would have signed as a free agent anyways. It also brings some more sanity to the free agent market, right? Because you're looking at, well, is he going to stay? Is he going to leave? Everybody's waiting on some player to make a decision. If if they're going to do it and you lock the player up before free agency hits, it takes some of the excitement out, but I think the teams would appreciate it. Yeah, taking the excitement out for me, 
I, I prefer that more players become free agents and there'd be fewer extensions for a couple of years. Number one, just because it makes free agency more interesting. Number two, it'll lead to fewer bad contracts because you're paying the player at the time that you know you don't have intervening time between when the extension is signed and when it kicks in where there's performance or injury risk or something like that i prefer that generally the players who are good get paid and the ones who aren't as good don't get paid um but who yeah what players have benefited from this rule have benefited from the extension rule like like the newly relaxed extension rule yes name a player who signed on who extended a three-year deal or who extended on the second anniversary of a four-year deal yeah well um i mean i think kevin love signed for longer than he could he signed a four-year extension i think he'll end up getting more in that extension than he necessarily would have gotten as a free agent this offseason okay um so so that's one um but that's probably the only one so far and uh you know lou williams Spencer Dinwiddie, Josh Richardson, Malcolm Brogdon, you know, those are guys, especially for those guys who are coming off of like minimum three-year contracts uh, as second round picks or undrafted for them to be able to extend i think that's good for them to be able to get some guaranteed money quickly um you know but the teams have probably benefited on those deals more than the players but that's kind of how it's supposed to work right if it goes according to plan norm powell maybe has benefited from getting the extension early um so the other thing you mentioned was it's only you can only start at 120 percent of prior salary so that's prevented guys like jimmy butler kemba walker Kyrie irving from extending yes i don't think think that'll be as much of an issue going forward because generally those types of players will have been making enough you know those are old cba contracts you know before the cap spike so now generally 120 percent of what you're making the last year of your rookie extension will be enough for most guys so i'm kind of torn out i like to see more free agency i mean part of the reason the extension rules were tightened up was because teams were just killing themselves teams aren't as dumb as they used to be where they were giving like steven jackson you know a three-year 30 million dollar <laughs> extension like two years before he could become a free agent that sort of thing um so I think overall it's good just to give teams and players more optionality and let guys get protected, but there is a downside. So I'd say maybe it's like overall, whether it's good or not, I'd say maybe like a seven. That's what I had too. It's definitely yeah. a net positive for both sides. Uh, I And the only reason I wouldn't rate it higher is because I think they should have done better. They should have done more. So here's one which was not technically part of the 2017 CBA, but it was kicked in in 2011. And that's the increased luxury and repeater taxes. And the reason I'm bringing it up now is because we didn't really see the effects of it mm -hmm. much just due to the fact that it was phased in slowly. Uh, and also the fact that there is that big cap spike where teams just, you know, couldn't spend quickly enough to keep up and really be in the tax for most of that times but then you know we got to this 2018 offseason and all of a sudden everybody's constrained by the tax nobody can spend it's a really weird market oh, there's all these one-year deals that get signed um so how do you think that the increase so it used to be a dollar for dollar luxury tax the 2011 lockout they brought it in where it's now stair-stepped up where you can get you know once you're spending above 15 million or so over the tax it really gets prohibitively expensive for just about everybody um what do you think of those change how is that working out now well, before 2011, the previous tax system that you mentioned clearly was not punitive enough because teams just ignored it. They just saw it as the cost of doing business to put together a good team. And in a few cases, to put together a mediocre team, right? I think New York has been trapped in Portland and also 
New Jersey before they were Brooklyn. Uh, so the, a more punitive tax help. But there were really kind of three pillars to this, right? The first was the escalating tax in tiers, where every $5 million you went above the tax threshold, the amount of tax you paid went up. That is the biggest disincentive, and that's clearly had an effect. The second one was the system changes. So they made the value of mid-level exceptions smaller if you were far enough above the tax threshold. They made it so you couldn't receive a player in a sign-in trade. They made the equity in, in trades lower if you were a taxpayer at all. And I don't know about that one, just because I don't know if any team has ever really said, we're not going to spend that money because we're going to have a smaller mid-level exception, right? I I just don't think it's really had the effect. Maybe additive, you know, in the aggregate, all these things combined yeah. to help. Not but, being able to get guys in a sign and trade is big too. Yeah, but is it is that big enough that teams are going to say, I'm not going to spend this money because of that? Well, so so here's what I would say. I think that the system changes where you can't get a guy in a sign and trade and you're also limited to a smaller mid-level I think that that with the dollar for dollar would have been better because for a couple of reasons. Number one, the current luxury tax is basically like a hard cap for almost half the teams in the league. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like, st- there's still an equal protection issue here. Yeah, and those teams are supposedly the very small market teams that this was supposed to protect. The big market teams, they can, they feel like they can go into the tax when justified. Small market teams or teams with uh, deep-pocketed owners in some cases, even when the team is contending, uh, are feel like they can't go into the tax. But there was still the problem where, yeah, okay, some of the bad teams could go into the tax every once in a while if they needed to, if they really were ready to compete under the dollar-for-dollar tax. But you've also got the problem where teams like the Lakers and Knicks could just keep spending and spending and spending and really jack up their payrolls, which, you know, this does prevent, you know, you're you're preventing a team from spending double what another team is spending unless it's, you know, the 13, 14 nets. But (laughs) I think that with the rules that prevented sign-and-trades and with the smaller exceptions, and maybe you could even tighten that up a little bit more and say, all right, you can only use the mid-level exception every other year or something now, that you could have curtailed teams' spending, even with the dollar-for-dollar tax, uh, a lot better and just kind of seen what it looked like. Because I think, yeah, it's good to put a curb on the ultimate spending for big market teams, but the fact that you just can't go into the tax at all as a lower revenue team, I mean, that's really, really bad to me. I think that this is hurt small market teams more than it has hurt big market teams in the end. Uh, and I think Adam Silver even said something to that effect, kind of acknowledging that there are some teams that just can't go into the tax and that that might be a problem. Yeah, agreed. And the teams who are not taxpayers are the beneficiaries of half the tax money. So in that regard, it's it's a pseudo-revenue sharing. And it came about before there was the, the real robust direct revenue sharing we have now. So those effects... Are that they complicate things at the very least because they do help the mid level, the mid market teams that do manage to stay out of the of the luxury tax, but then that becomes uh, just another version of a penalty if if you go over and just making it that much harder for for spending into the tax to be palatable. And then I didn't mention the third pillar, which is the repeater tax, where if a team was a taxpayer four out of the past five years, was it, then they pay an extra yeah. dollar. But that's been pretty much a nothing burger. 
Yeah, well, and I, I think the repeater tax I would have kept. You know, maybe you make the repeater tax, you know, be two dollars instead of one dollar. Uh, you know, if you're talking about a hybrid system with the, yeah, maybe the old TBA. You know, or the, when you're really in, you know, your fourth and fifth season in a row in the tax, and then it's like, okay, you know, you're you're either a dynasty or you're just spending to spend. Um, so give me a uh, a rating for uh well first of all would you say that is that that tax is uh owner friendly or player friendly well it's if you were going to tax high spending teams you know players want teams to be high spending so by definition it's owner friendly but it's not even all owner friendly it's a few owner friendly again it's an equal protection issue so i wouldn't even go as far as to call it owner friendly yeah, I wouldn't necessarily either. I mean, if you're really a team that just isn't making money and you're going to get some, uh, you want to get some tax distribution and there's going to be more of a tax distribution. Although, interestingly enough, I think, you know, some of the larger tax distributions were under the old system as opposed to the new one where teams are like, oh, we can't go into the tax at all. I do think actually, I mean, because the players are guaranteed between 49 and 51% of the revenue each year, no matter how much each individual team ends up spending. So I actually think, you know, while the players might want teams to spend more, ultimately, I don't think it matters that much. And I think it's also good for the players that more teams have cap space uh, and the free agent market is generally going to be good with the exception of 2018 when everybody was up against the tax. So I actually think that with fewer teams going into the tax, then you've got more teams with cap space, more player movement, more of the market getting set for certain players, more players can get paid, go where they want to go with more teams having cap space instead of just, well, you know, I don't necessarily really want to be here, but nobody else can pay me. So I better just resign here with bird rights instead. So I actually think it's not as anti-player as a lot of people would believe. Well, let's back up to something you said with the fewer teams paying tax, because I'm not sure that that's true or at least directly true. Just because the big cap spike um, made it much harder to be a taxpayer in 2017. So, yeah, it was fewer in 2017, but for a different reason. I mean, in yeah. any given yeah, you're year. you're right. It's apples and oranges, right? Right. Now. In yeah. any given year, you're going to have five to seven teams paying the tax. It's been as few as two you know, and as many as 11 way back. But I took a look at it in terms of, you know, because the, the cap keeps going up, then the luxury tax ratio keeps going up. So if you look at it in terms of what the average team spends in luxury tax um, as a percentage of the tax threshold, it's actually been pretty consistent hmm. all the way from 2011 um, until now. So when you look at it from that perspective, and yeah, there's a couple of outliers. Like I said, the cap spike made 2017 an outlier, and then Brooklyn saying, hold my beer in 2013-2014 it also created an outlier. But other than that, it's the, the the net effects on the league have been pretty flat. Yeah, that's that's interesting. So, but in terms of like the total amount of tax that is paid, tax distribution is that pretty similar? You know, in the these last couple of years, as it was under the two thousand five CBA, say. Well, okay, so I I did make a list of this. So in 26, 2006 to 2011, respectively. So under the two, two CBAs ago, it was 72 
55, 93, 87, 112, and 73. And the 112 was 11 teams paying the tax. Yeah. So it's it's more a function of how many teams go over. And then after the 2011 CBA, it was 32, 71, then 150. But New Jersey accounted for 90 of that. So yeah. again, that's the outlier. Then 42, 119 with seven teams, and then the cap spike. So 28, and then in 2017, 18, back up to 110. Yeah, so it does really seem like it's been consistent. All right, well, that's uh, that's why we have you here, actual <laughs> data, as opposed to my very foggy memories. All right, here's so uh, ultimately, then the increased luxury tax. Uh, give me your one to ten rating. One is bad, ten is great. I would call. I I think that it's a net negative, so I would have to call it less than five. Let's call it a four. I mean, I think it does some of what it intends, but again, I don't like the uh, equal protection issues that this thing causes. And ultimately, yeah, I know what you mean. Maybe it causes teams to spend less, which creates cap room, which which it causes free agency, which causes player movement, which causes higher salaries. But that's a pretty circuitous way to get there too. So I would. I'm going to call it a five. Let's or even less than that. I'll call it a four. Yeah. Other than that cap room thing, which I actually just thought of now, uh, I was going to call it a one. I'll call it a two. Okay. Uh, so you're really against reason. it. Yeah. No, I, I really don't care for it very much. But um, w- one thing though, it is a lot better than the system that the 2011 CBA replaced. And that one, the tax itself wasn't guaranteed every year. So teams just had to guess that there was going to be a tax at all. And they also had to guess where the threshold was going to end up being because the threshold wasn't determined until after the season was over. So oh, that's terrible. an oops moment could have been really bad. They they put in a couple of rules to help. Uh, there was what's called the cliff provision where the first couple of million over the threshold, you got penalized yet and you had to be a few million over before you felt the full effects. But still, it was a bad system. All right, here's another one. They changed the moratorium and restricted free agent signings. You can actually sign a restricted free agent deal now during the moratorium, uh, but the match period is only two days, that, and that starts at the end of the moratorium. So you're looking at really July 8th until the inflection point, the match or no match decision comes for restricted free agents. The idea there was to make it a little bit easier to get a free agent offer sheet. Um, I'll, I'll say I thought at the, the time it happened, I thought it was just a, a meaningless stop to the players. It wasn't going to encourage free agent offer sheets. Uh, and I believe, in fact, it, it really hasn't. It's made no difference to me. So I, I would grade that one a one. Well, they almost made a good rule out of it because if I I love the idea of having the restricted free agent offer sheets be available on July 1st, love the idea because the restricted free agents were like the bastard stepchildren of free agency before, right? Because all the unrestricted guys got chased and signed. Now now they're just the stepchildren. (laughs) Yeah. And once they all got signed, then they turned their attention to the restricted guys, but all the money was gone by then. And the only teams that could afford to keep a lot of those players were the ones with bird rights to those players. So they ended up not not moving, staying with their old teams. Now, by allowing them to sign an offer sheet on July 1st, that meant that ostensibly the restricted free agents could have been taken care of first, which is a couple of points of benefit, right? One of them is if if they're taken care of first, it sort of reverses that that sequence. And now they're off the table before you get to the unrestricted guys. And yeah, some of the money's off the table, but then the unrestricted guys, 
you know, you, you know that those guys are off the table. And then the, the unrestricted guys, again, it's a little bit more stable of a market and everybody can go all out for those guys. Um, but they made it so that you had to wait until after the moratorium. So let's say that somebody signs a free agent offer sheet on July 1st. Instead of being able to match, having to match by July 3rd, you still get 48 hours after the moratorium ends. So you get until July 8th. So in, instead of giving a team two days to make a decision, now you're giving them seven days to make the same decision. You're not putting any pressure on them at all. And in fact, taking some of it off. So I think that that, that not including the rule that the, the match period was the same, whether it was the moratorium or not, just killed this rule, killed the benefit. I agree. And to me, I don't see any reason for there to be a moratorium anyway. I mean, I think you could just do the two-day match period, but get rid of the moratorium and everyone could just start signing contracts. With well, that, that's that's a separate discussion, right? Because it used yeah. to be there because of the leak audit. And that it used to be the whole month of July because the audit would take that long. And over time, they kept getting the audit done faster and they shortened the, the time period. And I remember a conversation I had in Vegas at Summer League with one of the league lawyers a year before, so 2016, a year before the 2017 CBA. And he was kind of giving me hints about stuff. He's going, you know, we know enough on June 30th that we really don't have to wait for the audit. We could just agree with the Players Association what number we're going to use and that's going to be good enough. And then that's exactly what they did. So, there's no longer an audit-based reason to have to uh, have the July moratorium. It's now they're just as kind of a cooling off period or a period of, you know, open negotiation. But the fact that teams and players can announce, okay, I'm going here. We've, we've signed this, well, we're, we've agreed in principle to sign with this guy with the moratorium list. That's in effect the same. It takes a guy off the table. So why not just just allow a team to go ahead and sign the guy then. And then you get out of the whole Dallas DeAndre Jordan scenario that really hurt the league a couple of years ago. All right, here's another one. Uh, rookie extension deadline this is a pretty simple one. The rookie extension deadline used to be October 31st, or if it was a weekend, it'd be a couple of days afterwards. Now uh, that extension is the first day of the regular season. I like that rule. I like having to do it before the start of the season. So you just don't have that hanging over you. You don't have the chance of somebody getting injured. So, I mean, I guess you're not, you don't get to see a few games of the guy in action before, but you do at least get a training camp to get him in and kind of see what shape he's in and that, that kind of stuff. So, uh, I yeah, like that. Yeah. I, the, I like that they're, uh, I like that one. I would give it like an eight, I think. I think so too. I mean, the old deadline was kind of arbitrary anyways. So yeah, yeah go for it. Well, and then they kept though the deadline for exercise rookie options and to have that be the end of October and I actually think that's okay too you know especially getting a look at a guy those first couple of games when you have to look at something that far forward um you know it's not that's something that's unilateral for the team anyway so there's less of an issue of kind of the negotiations being a distraction or something like that so sure um Okay, the right sizing here. Do you, uh, you explain briefly what that is before we talk about it? Sure. Well, the first thing to keep in mind, if you're going to understand this, is that the players' salaries are a zero-sum game. And you alluded to this before, where the players are guaranteed between 49 and 51% of revenue. It becomes a set number, and the players collectively get that amount of money to the dime. So it's really not about how big of a contract you're going to get, but it's about what size of a fit, what 
what what size of slice of fixed size pie you get. That was a tough way of saying that, but uh, and if you're going to get more, it means that some other players really going to get less. So uh, under the old system, so and then then it's how you balance those things, right? So under the old system, um, they originally meant for like the mid level and first round picks and the minimum contracts to be a certain proportion of the money of that overall money, but. In, in reality, it wasn't really um, a, that proportion every year. Only max salaries worked that way, where it was tied to a percentage of the cap. Everything else, they projected out the exact amount for every year of the CBA. And they built in a raise every year. But what happened was that revenues outpaced those increases that they built in. So that by the time you got to the end of the 2011 CBA, the players who you were trying to protect, the minimum salary guys, the rookies, the mid-level guys who you wanted to ensure got a pretty reasonable deal, they all got a much lower percentage of the cap overall than what they started with. So in in 2011, a mid-level would would have been uh, like 35% higher than it would have been in 2017 proportionally. So right-sizing just fixes that. It says, all right, we didn't, the, the system where we just put in hard amounts and projected forward didn't work out right. So we're just going to tie everything to the revenue every year. So that was change one. Um, instead of hard amounts, they set a hard amount just for the 2017-2018 season. And then they said, whatever revenue goes up or down, it could go down, but whatever it changed, that's the amount by which the, all those other things, the minimums, the rookie salaries, and the mid-levels change as well. The other thing is that they fixed the fact that it gotten proportionally smaller and smaller over the years, and they just bumped everything up by 35%. And they took a few years for the rookie scale contracts, but um, overall, it brought it back into the kind of proportion you want it to have because you do want to protect, you, know, you want to make it so that if a guy is a minimum salary player and could be in the league only a couple of years, that they have an opportunity to earn a good chunk of money. And this helps to ensure that. Yeah, I like that. I think it's a, it's a 10, especially rookie contracts were just so undervalued by the time 2016 came around mm-hmm. with the cap spike that uh, matching that up again was a good idea same thing with the the minimum contracts and the exception um this is an interesting one an increase in rookie scale cap holds for guys coming off their rookie contracts you can think of this as the Kawhi leonard rule where he had a really small cap hold had been the 15th pick in 2011 2015 offseason he's a restricted free agent they used his small cap hold to go ahead and sign lamarcus aldridge and then they sign him to a max deal um so now instead of 250 percent for players making under the average salary and 200 percent for players making above it it's now 250 and 300 percent respectively so it bumps up the cap holds of guys coming off rookie contracts takes away a little bit of teams cap space there yeah so it's one of the of a couple of rule changes they made with the 2017 cba to better align the rules with reality because the old rules created a couple of small loopholes which is exactly what you said and and it's been going back for a 
long time. I remember Michael Red was another one where that happened many years ago, where a player, if a player's cap hold was smaller than his market value, well, you go out and sign some other player, a free agent first, and then you turn your attention to your own guy with your bird rights and take advantage of the fact that his cap hold was too small. And this just realigns what the cap hold is with what the player's market value typically is. And the cap hold itself is just a placeholder for what you think the player is going to sign for. And it's it's not based on the player himself. It's formula-based based on the situation he's in. Well, the, the players in this situation were typically coming in free agency with a higher market value than the cap hold was representing, so they fixed it. Yeah, and I think it particularly matters for guys who are top five picks, uh, who are both making more to begin with now under the previous thing we talked about, and then it's a higher percentage of their last year's salary for their capital. So, you know, D'Angelo Russell, for example, this year is going to have a $20 million capital as the former number two overall pick. Uh, and so that will, uh, and he hasn't even bumped up his salary technically under the new CBA, at least for his cap number, he's getting paid more. Uh, but so, but for him to be $20 million, you know, now it's like that's probably around what he's going to make. And Brooklyn doesn't really get any quote unquote extra space there, uh, which I think is fine. I, I would get, grade that at like a seven. I would say you could maybe throw some things in where it, say if the guy meets the starter criteria or something like that, you know, you would bump up his cap hold a little bit more. But, you know, I'm, I'm fine with teams getting a little extra benefit for finding a gem later in the draft with the guy having a smaller cap hold. Yeah. Yeah. No, I gave it a seven as well. Um, Next one here. This one I think is a pretty obvious no brainer. A 10, I would say first round pick cap holds are now 120% of scale, which was the most you could pay guys previously though. That was only a hundred percent of scale. And so that led to teams just not signing their rookies so they could get an extra, you know, 500,000 bucks or a million bucks of cap space. Uh, Now that takes that away. It does reduce teams cap space a little bit, but it was ridiculous for teams to not be able to sign rookies right away. So I'm glad they did that. Yeah, me too. Same thing as before, where the rule didn't align with reality. Players were signing for 120% of the scales amount most of the time. So why have a cap hold that's less than what the player's actually going to sign for and incentivize the team not to sign him? That was a clear win. All right, this is probably the most controversial one, at least uh, from what you, I hear from agents. I'm sure you hear from agents mm-hmm. and teams about this a, a lot. The two-way contract system. Yeah, so ostensibly a great thing, right? Because 60 new jobs in the league. Um, it increases rosters to 17, or you can have 15 guys under regular contracts and two two-way players in addition to that. So here's more jobs, more money than the guy could make in the G League directly, more opportunities to to play, train, learn, practice with the parent team, play in their system, play with the, the best coach um those players can't be poached by other teams a player who signs a regular G League contract can be signed I mean could be, yeah could be signed away by another NBA team there's no real protection but the two-way players are protected so you have the ability to invest in the guy and know that he's going to be yours um the small downside is that um some teams I think and I, this is what I've heard some agents say is that a team might 
choose to sign a two-way player rather than that 15th guy at the NBA level salary. And I do think the numbers bear that out. I think the the number of contracted players with regular NBA contracts has gone down slightly since since the two-way players became available. So, you know, the actual effects are maybe a mixed bag. But I still think it's a positive thing for the league. I would still call this, even with the downsides, maybe a net seven or eight. Um, and I think that it's the, the opportunity there, I think, makes it player friendly. Some other upsides to this rule just gets more, makes the G League and the NBA more viable for more players. You just make more talent here in America as opposed to me overseas. Mm-hmm. Um, however, I do think there are a couple of downsides. I mean, one is for the two way players who really show themselves to be NBA talent, they really kind of get screwed, especially because the qualifying offer for a free agent coming off a two-way contract is just another two-way contract with 50,000 guarantee. I mean, that's just zero leverage for that player. You know, I think if you're going to really make a guy a restricted free agent, you should have to tender some sort of an NBA contract, maybe not a fully guaranteed one, but you know, something 200,000 guaranteed actual NBA contract, something like that to keep a guy on a roster once the two way expires. I mean, if you're not willing to do that, the guy's obviously not that amazing and you should probably just make him a free agent and let him go somewhere else if he's got a chance. Well, um, and this is also, it's a developmental league and this system yeah. is supposed to be grooming players. And the greatest success you can have is that a player becomes a two-way player, plays a season, develops the, the, the skills to become a regular NBA player. That's a success. So you want to reward that. So I agree with you there. Yeah, so I think that's an issue. Another issue that I have is when teams need to sign players during the regular season, the pool for doing so is really bad. And so you get a lot of players who are just, you know, now it's not players who would have been, you know, 16th and 17th men. It's guys who would be 18th and 19th men because all the guy, the top players are already on two ways in other organizations. And so those guys now can't join another NBA team. Yeah, but um, that's offset by the fact that you do have that 16th and 17th yeah. that you've groomed all year. Yeah, no, I, I think that's helped to, to some degree, although, you know, there's only a limited number of games you can play in the NBA, of course. Um, if I had it to do over, I think I, I would maybe just have one spot for two-way contracts instead of two um, and kind of see how that goes. And that, or maybe, maybe what you could do also is if you get 15 players on your roster, then you get a second two way slot. But if you don't have 15 NBA contracts, then you only get one two way slot. I think that's reasonable. That combined with the ability to get a full NBA salary if you've earned it as a G League player. Um, this one I think is an interesting one. I mean, it's good for us cap dorks because it used to be that the quote unquote 25, 30 and 35% maxes were actually like, you know, 23.8%. And, you know, just cause there was a weird calculation difference that's too boring to get into. So now they made it actually be 25, 30 and 35%. So it makes it easy for us. I guess the question is just simply, would you rather that the max salaries be a little bit higher or not? I, I like it as 25, 30, 35. And you're right. It was just a quirk of the rules that it got signed. They, the maximums and the cap calculation were tied to the same amount, the same formula. They 
they um, negotiated a higher cap, but didn't do the same thing with the max salaries. So those two became decoupled and they were just lower for a few years. Um, you know, on one hand, it makes it easier for us. On the other hand, you guys like you and I lose a slight bit of value, don't we? Because our, <laughs> well, our, our understanding this was equity. Yeah, or or my ability to email you and get the <laughs> was equity. That was great. Um, last one here. I mean, I, that one seems like you know I call that a nine probably. Uh, for me, uh, I, I I just go lower just because there's not a lot of tangible benefit to it. I I put yeah. it as a five just because okay, nice you did it, but who's really benefiting from it? No one. Yeah, I mean you're you're just putting more money in the hands of the best players and less for the middle class essentially right by doing that by bumping each of those up by like you know a million bucks a year on the max contract um okay last one here the season was increased from 170 to 177 days a shorter training camp and a maximum of six rather than eight preseason games the longer season yes absolutely right fewer back-to-backs four and fives Players rest more. They're healthier. Um, they're they're fresher. It's 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 a and you know they were they were holding players out at the end of the year a lot more and they've they've tightened up on that too. So the fans who pay big money to go see the players have a better chance of seeing them toward the end of the year. So I just think that's a huge improvement. And the same thing with the shorter training camps and preseasons. Uh, the old assumptions about really players needing to work their way into shape just are no longer true. And it didn't have to be, you know, eight games, 10% of the season in order to, um, to get ready to play the actual season. I mean, I remember a couple of years ago, the Lakers were playing the full eight and we were in Anaheim and that last game was just so tedious. And then it, that game went into overtime. We were all just. <laughs> dying so i i like that i like i like everything about this you know it's a slight revenue loss because there's a couple of games but even before players teams were choosing not to play that many games in many cases so i would call this an eight at least maybe even i i think you're grading a little bit more generously than i am so eight to ten yeah i think it's good overall also i think for fans you just get another week to watch some other teams maybe or you know they're just few Fewer games on a given night you can lock in more on the game so if you're really like a league pass junkie it's a little easier to do it that way and hopefully fewer injuries i think it's i don't know whether this has been the case but we do our top 10 uh, you know or whether this is just a blip but we do our top 10 players in the nba usually every march and this year none of the top 10 players that we had really none of like the top 13 or 14 you know have had a major injury where they missed more than 20 games this year you know victor oladipo is the only guy really has had a season-ending injury among the best players in the game and so maybe having a little bit more uh space out and Kawhi leonard was really the only guy i, I think in that group who missed time last year and he came into the season with an injury so with all that being the case, I, I think it maybe it has helped with player health, especially among some of the better players, although probably too early to say yet, really, from a scientific standpoint there. But early indications are it's helped. Yeah, LeBron had that one injury and missed a few games. Really, that, that we can call that the worst injury of, of his career. But who knows yeah. if that's to do with age or just having to carry the team more on his back than he had to before or what. So it's one player, one injury like that, you can't really rule out just being a fluke. 
All right, well, let's talk a little bit uh, about SBC. We first started it uh, four years ago. You've basically been the uh, the headmaster, the general manager, whatever your uh, whatever your title is this year. Do you, do you change it up every year? No, I keep it as general manager. It's, all right, all right. I, so, I, I keep it simple. Um, well, so a lot of people may know about SBC already. You know, we've talked about it on previous shows, but like, what are some of the really like the highlights for you? Like your favorite parts of doing it? Well, for me, you know, I like getting a, a big diverse class where, you know, applications are coming in. I'm looking for certain things in people, but I want that to assemble into a diverse cohort where together they're greater than the sum of their parts. And luckily that's happened every year because these guys are together for that full week and they're learning from each other. I wouldn't say as much, but, you know, to a large extent um, from their own, from their shared experiences, from uh, hearing about each other's past experiences. So I like getting that diverse class in to a situation where everybody is just immersed in the summer league. And my selling point for that is always the same. Think about what the Las Vegas Summer League is. The entire league is there in one place for two weeks in a relaxed setting. You know, try going to All-Star Game and being able to talk to people. Ain't happening. That that thing is locked down and it's only for one weekend. And, you know, Summer League is just the opposite. You're there and not only is, is it a relaxed environment, but we immerse you in it. We we bring the best of the, the people at the Summer League to you. I mean, we've had Adam Silver. We pulled him into it. Uh, uh, we get Mike D'Antoni, Scotty Brooks, uh, Rob Polinka spoken for us, um, Rick Carlisle, media. Yeah, Daryl Morey is a regular. Daryl, yeah, yeah. Daryl. Daryl comes in. T- our analytics teachers every year. Daryl Morey and Kirk Goldsberry. I mean, how how cool is that? Uh, we get the top media people. You know, Kristen Ledgelow, Woj, Shams. Uh, you know, the starters always do, always do something with us. So all these great people, they're there for you. Um, the, you're there networking with them. You're immersed in the summer league. We are putting you to work. The one thing I want to emphasize is this is not a fantasy camp. You're there to learn. You're, we're putting you to work. You are working directly in the summer league. You're scouting games with scouts. You're helping us with the broadcast. You're, you're actually doing stuff. You're doing analytics with analytics guys. You're, you know, we have team video guys who are taking you in and showing you the software they use and letting you play with it. You're learning the salary cap from you, me, and Eric Pincus. It's it's a great learning opportunity. It's a great networking opportunity. If you're interested in in a job in sports, this provides those those contacts, builds your network. Not only do do you get to know them, but they get to know you. They're going to know who you are and. I've worked pretty hard to make this a respectable program where anybody in the league who sees that you come out of sports business classroom is going to know that you got a, a great education, great immersion in that week. Yeah, a couple of things that that I can add to that. I think for me, this is like actually as nervous as I ever get because like this podcast is free, right? Like I'm not charging you anything. Like we're actually, you know, we're, it's not cheap to to do this. How much are we charging this year, by the way? It, it varies because, and I'm going to get into this right now. There is early bird pricing. All right. So, but it, it's, uh, it's multiple thousands of dollars. And so for me, I'm like, man, like not that everyone's coming just to see me, but hopefully I'm part of it. And I'm teaching stuff. I feel so much pressure 
to live up to the fact that people have made this investment to come and learn from me and partially on on my advice and recommendation that they're going i mean i i really really struggle to find something else where i feel like i've i've had this much pressure to live up to what i'm selling here so i think and it's always an awesome experience for me to get to know people i've made a lot of friends there um you know people who we still stay in touch with people who have come back you know liam uh our former director of insight and foresight on the show we met him at sbc ben dull who works with us for the uh, nba cast met him there as well a lot of people who i still keep in touch with and love a lot dave dufour i think you know he would probably say that sbc like launched his career uh in media so, so and we know former students who've gotten positions with team. It doesn't happen to everybody, but I think I've never talked to anyone who was like, oh, this wasn't worth it. You know what I mean? At the very least, you're going to have an awesome time and you're going to be challenged and you're going to meet great people, both the instructors and uh, your fellow classmates. So I think right. it's an awesome opportunity. Yeah, we don't guarantee you a, a job in the league. Of course, nobody can because there aren't that many jobs to go around. And for every job, there's a lot of people looking for them. But if you are interested in a job in the league, would you rather have this kind of background where you're conversant in the CBA, you're conversant in scouting, you're conversant in analytics, you have built a network and you know these people, you have been you know, polished by our professor who works with people on their resume and interviewing uh, skills, Jeff Fellinser. You are getting the, the benefit of of that and you're a step ahead of the the all the people who do not have that. We have um VSL talent, which is think of it like a LinkedIn for NBA talent, where we have employers, teams coming to that, looking for people, perusing that site to try to find some talent. And as a SPC graduate, you get um, to have your profile on VSL talent. So it it really is something where you you don't need this to get a job in the league. It doesn't guarantee you a job in the league, but it certainly provides you with a background to increase your chances. And as to what you said before, you're absolutely right. It's not just the investment in dollars. It's an investment of a week of your time. It's an investment of trust in me that I'm going to deliver you the kind of program that you're putting that money and that time into. And I want to make sure that I'm, I'm over delivering on that. I'm giving you so much content during that week. I'm doing my best to bring the best people to you. And fortunately, the feedback that I've always gotten, um, a lot of students say this is the best experience of their lives. So I'm, I'm really happy with, with the feedback I've got and really happy with the outcome. I actually got a nice message from one of our students a couple days ago saying that he actually got a number of internship opportunities. He was still in college with like big five accounting firms. I think it's still five. Yeah. Uh, like so apparently and that he talked about his experience there and that they were actually impressed with it and that was part of why uh he was able to get uh, offered those internship opportunities so apparently like the real world even respects us i hope so <laughs> um all right anything else you want to say about the program before we go well yeah some of the vital statistics so this is going to be july 7th through 13th we are at the las vegas summer league we are in the arena we're the only program that can be in the arena because we are part and parcel of summer league itself if you're interested, you can go to sportsbusinessclassroom.com. Um, registration's open now. Uh, we're offering early bird registration, $250 off, but it's only through the end of March. However, 
just for dunked on listeners, I'll do a couple of extra things. Um, one is I will give dunked on listeners an additional hundred dollars off through the end of March. If you get on, um, register before the end of March and you're a dunked on listener, I will give you 350 off instead of 250. And I will also extend early bird through for an additional two weeks, uh, for that 250 off. If you're a dunked on listener, you don't, you need Nate, you need some kind of, I don't know, code that you can enter that you use for all your stuff. <laughs> yeah, I'm struggling to come up with one. I have one for you. How, okay, how, how about this? All right, be ready for this. Okay. Non-taxpayer mid-level exception. <laughs> Just rolls off the tongue, doesn't it? It does, doesn't it? There's there's like a meter and a rhythm to it. Uh, is cap space filled? Can we use cap space? Hey, that's a little shorter, isn't it? All right. <laughs> If you go, if you register before Sunday, Sunday, March 31st, and you use the code CAPSPACE or non-taxpayer mid-level exception, I will give you 350 off. And if you do it through April 15th, 250 off. How's that for your listeners? All right. That, that sounds good. Thanks. Uh, so yeah, sportsbusinessclassroom.com. And uh, hopefully you'll get accepted and hopefully uh, we will see you this summer. And thanks again to uh, the cap father, the headmaster, the general manager of Sports Business Classroom, Larry Gruden, for joining us. Always a pleasure. At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every goal, every game, every point, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a game-winning goal in the final seconds of overtime or a shot on the goal in the first period. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply.